Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. I'm Sarah. I'm Hannah. And we're on a mission to help you become the gardener you want to be. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. We are excited because it's officially springtime, and so we are out planting. We're doing all the things, and it is right around Arbor Day now, so we are here to talk about trees, and actually a fun one because we're Bloombox, so it's trees and bees because we like to make things rhyme. So we are here with Chrissy Land. Hello, Chrissy. Hello. And she has bees and trees. <laughs> has them both. So she's going to help us learn a little bit more about how bees and trees interact. Can you please introduce yourself? Yes, absolutely. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Chrissy Land. I am the Western Nebraska Community Forester with the Nebraska Forest Service. Um, my office is in the Panhandle of Nebraska in Scott's Bluff. And I am lucky enough that I get to cover the western half of the state for my job. That's a big half to cover. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much Highway 183 West is kind of the dividing line, but it's all good. I enjoy to travel. There's a lot of really fun people that live in Nebraska. So professionally, we know that you know trees, but personally, you know bees. You yes. keep bees and you love plants. Absolutely. So we thought this is perfect because one of the tough things to talk about is, um, so we've got our great perennial and grass gardens all set up for our pollinators, but we're still missing a piece and that is woody plants are so, so important to creating a full habitat. Absolutely. So do you want to tell us a little bit? I know you've told me some stories about like observing near honeybees and the trees that they visit in your yard. Do you want to tell us a little bit about like just where you've seen them go? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, you would think that the bees would not be very active early in the year. Um, a lot of people don't realize that the bees are in somewhat of a hibernation mode over the winter months. And so when the spring, you know, starts rolling around and it could technically actually be a little bit early or late winter, not actually spring yet. Towards the end of the month of February, the bees are going to be out collecting pollen from trees that are starting to bloom. Um, I'm lucky enough that I'm close to the North Platte River. And so especially coming into March when all of the maples, which would be the box elders, in the maple family um, along the river that's naturalized, they have started to bloom and you will see the bees coming back with their pollen pants completely packed full. I love that. I want pollen pants. Yes. Don't we all? I do not want pollen pants. <laughs> it's fun. When they come back, it's interesting because you can see the different colors of pollen and that can help you somewhat indicate what source they might have come from um later on when the dandelions start they get these bright orange pollen pants and so i always say it's the bee's knees to be wearing orange socks <laughs> well that we can we can get orange socks we can do that i get honey from you and i can tell in i mean i can't tell i don't know what the flowers are but i see the difference when you bring me honey um sometimes it's really dark and sometimes it's really light yeah, and that's all goes back to the source of it and the timing of the year. You know, some beekeepers are very adamant about taking honey off after, you know, certain blooms. So that way, so if you wanted dandelion honey, you would make sure that you pull frames after they harvested all of the pollen and nectar from the dandelions to get a dandelion base or primary tasting of that honey. Um, I am a beekeeper that waits until the end of the season and I collect all of my honey at once. And so um, I have a lot of alfalfa around me. And then with the river, there's also a lot of naturalized areas. Um, thistle is actually one of them that they pull a lot from. Um, and whether it's a good thing or not, there are a few pockets of a lot of thistle within close proximity. The bees are going to fly roughly a mile to a mile and a half. They will fly up to three miles for food to collect pollen and nectar, but for the most part, 
they're going to stay within that mile area. And so within the mile from me, I've got the river and I've got a lot of alfalfa. And of course, the thing, though, that we found this last year with the alfalfa is that it can bloom. But if there's no moisture, there's no nectar. And so if the farmer is not irrigating the alfalfa around the time that the, the alfalfa is going to be pushing blooms, it's not going to have very much nectar. And the bees need a lot of nectar. And so most of the time, by the end of the season, I have a lot of sunflower. I have a lot of, um, it's probably like 90% alfalfa. Because by the time you get to the fall, the bees have probably already eaten or used up the food source that they stocked in the spring. So when they're getting all that dandelion honey, there might be some dandelion cells that they don't get to that gets mixed in at the end. But that's why my honey is very, very deep in the floral taste. Like you can tell that there are a lot of different ones. A couple years ago when we had a really amazing um, year for yellow sweet clover, we were able to get some honey off of that that was only yellow sweet clover. And that is very light colored, almost completely see-through. And it is very, very sweet. Um, when you put that next to the alfalfa honey, it is amazing, the difference between the two of them. Uh, the sweet clover is kind of like a sharp sweet at the beginning. Um, and the alfalfa honey is like a smooth sweet. So you kind of become this honey connoisseur. Uh, and knowing what kind of plants they're pulling from. I'm not a honey connoisseur. I can't tell, like, I can't taste it and tell you the difference. But whenever I get a new jar from you, I know that I always, like, have to stick my finger in it, even if it's maybe going to go in food later. <laughs> I want to taste the actual honey. Yeah. And it's different every time you bring it to me. I just sold some to a friend. It was her first time. She didn't really um, eat a lot of honey, but she was trying to transition to having tea instead of coffee in the morning and really wanted to have that sweetener, but natural. And she never really liked honey because it was too sweet for her. Um, And that's because she was buying honey from the store, which is cut with a lot of sugar syrup. And so um, when she got mine, she messaged me like not even a couple days later. And she was like, oh, my gosh, this is the best thing ever. Like, it's sweet, but it's not too sweet. Mm -hmm. It's just the perfect natural amount. I like putting it when I bake a lot of bread and I like to put it in. Like, even if the recipe doesn't call for it, I'll just put a tablespoon of honey in it. And you can it doesn't just make the bread sweet. It adds like a a depth of flavor. Yes. Yes. The depth of flavor is big. Um, A lot of people will actually use honey as a substitute for um, any sugar. And there's online tables that you can look up to figure out what that is. Okay, I'm going to go back to trees. But first, I have to share this trick that you taught me because I think a lot of people might benefit from it. So I get honey from Chrissy in like big jars, like a lot of honey at a time. And sometimes I don't get through it before it crystallizes. And it does that a little faster, I think, than the honey I used to get from the store. But you taught me how to put it in my Instant Pot on the sous vide. Sous vide? Say that for us. (laughs) On the sous vide setting. Yeah, we're not that that, one. We're not that fancy. (laughs) Anyway, on the fancy setting and cook it for a couple hours. And once I do that, it never recrystallizes. It can take a really long time. Um, You definitely don't want to overheat your honey more than 110 degrees, because beyond that, you're going to be destroying any of the good um, microbes and other like beneficial parts to raw honey. And that's the thing. That's the difference is that you were getting raw honey. Um, And because I harvest late and I have a lot of sunflower, one interesting thing that my mentor taught me was that the sugar crystal of the nectar of sunflower is in such an odd shape that it quickly grabs onto other sugar crystals and it will cause the honey to crystallize much faster. And so if I get a year that has way more sunflower nectar in it, Um, then you're going to have honey that's going to crystallize a lot faster. But other honey, it doesn't. But you're exactly right. Um, Turn on the Instapot. It's 
I usually set mine for eight hours, uh, do a bath water. I always put my honey in glass jars because it's a lot easier to decrystallize. And if you do a partial decrystallization, it's just going to recrystallize very fast because you still have crystals in there. Um, but if you do a full decrystallization, I do eight hours on 110 degrees and in a water bath and set it on overnight and it's good for months. Yeah, I the problem I have is that my kitchen is a very cold room. And so it crystallized really fast, but once I did that, it never went back. It was so cool. Yes, it's it's very helpful to do that. Science. <laughs> we like it. Okay, back to the the trees. So, you said box elder and maple is something you see them visit a lot. Right. That's about the earliest pollen source, um, the thing that's really important with honeybees, and you have to keep in mind, everybody always says, you know, save the bees, become a beekeeper. That's not how you're going to save the bees. You're just becoming a farmer. You are having a livestock for a byproduct, just like if you had a milk cow and you were getting milk. I have honeybees and I'm getting honey. And so there are beekeepers and there are bee havers. And so a beekeeper is going to actually look into and learn all of the complexities of keeping honeybees. Um, a bee haver is just going to go get a hive and let, let them sit there and not do anything with them, which is absolutely not what we want to do. Um, but as far as the trees go, the reason why it's important to be a beekeeper is to understand that early spring, they need way more pollen than they do nectar. They're still collecting water all winter long. They have their honey stored for their food source for the adults. But in the spring is when the queen is gonna start laying and they have to have that pollen to make bee bread to feed the, um, the larva. And so in the spring, they're really after a lot of pollen. And so as soon as those trees start um, blooming, they are out there collecting as much pollen as they possibly can. And box elder, for me, being close to the river and being so naturalized, the other one is elm. Um, a lot of people don't realize that both maple, it's all maples, and box elder, obviously, we know is, is in the maple family. And so um, those are some really critical early season uh, kind of jump starts. Those are the trees that we need to be able to help. And the thing is, is it's not just the honeybees that are using this. You have to keep in mind that we do have other, a lot of other native bees that are going to start emerging and they will be in the mode of, I need to reproduce. And usually most commonly their young are all going to be eating pollen of some kind. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good point to make that, um, you know, we talk about saving the bees. And when we talk about that, we're talking about the native bees, the native pollinators. Honeybees are their livestock because we're getting something and we're they're not native here. We brought them here so that we could have honey. But we because they're a livestock, we know them very intimately and they are in larger groups so we can see them. Right. And observe them. But they're good indicators of what's happening with the native population, too. They, We might see the honeybees more um, because our native species are more individualistic. They, right. There may be a couple of them at a time, but we can see what's happening with the honeybees. Exactly. There's a lot of diversity with the natives and the way that they rear their young or raise their young and so like you said with the honeybees we're constantly monitoring them because we are beekeepers we are not bee havers and so you're constantly watching you know do they have enough resources you're able to you know it's been engineered the whole bee colony box has been engineered for people to be able to manage and maintain these hives um but as an indicator you're exactly right um in my own personal garden I always watch, I do put up some hotels, some bee hotels, and I had learned that it is very poor practice to keep those up for long term. Really, they are only meant for a one-year use, if not a maximum two-year use, because one of the biggest um, issues, or I guess pests that we have, even for our native bees, is mites. The bees can get mites. And so if you are leaving your hotels 
constantly. It's just creating a mite hotel, essentially. And so you want to be able to switch those out. Um, one of the things that I learned that is so fantastic, and I'm starting to do this way more, is stealing all of the sunflower in the fall when it dries out and then the bees will actually eat out the foam in the middle and so they will create their own essentially laying tunnels um, that they that they want and so all you have to do is just get a box hang it up on the fence and put a bunch of those you know six inch long sections of sunflower of different sizes and shapes Um, I will say that I see way more often about the quarter inch on my bee hotels um, used way more often than the others. Um, But I am constantly watching. I do have essentially a bloom box in my yard and I'm always looking to see what kind of native insects. And it's not just the bees, it's also the wasps. I am so excited whenever I see all these different types of thread-waisted wasps but they're all individual. They don't, most of them don't colonize. Some of our uh, bumblebees they will colonize. Um, but then also like later on in the fall, when I'm looking at my sunflowers, I have a lot of solitary bees that are sleeping on my sunflowers. And so not only do I have the habitat for them to be, you know, collecting their food and rearing their young, but also just sleeping. So If somebody wanted to plant a tree in western Nebraska to help support the trees, to help support the bees and the trees, both things, what are maybe like your top five? Because you've already talked about box elder and elm, which with elm, we all have to be careful what's planted, right? But what are some other options? Um, I would definitely say chokecherry is a really great all-around pollinator, um, pro tree, I guess, um, not only is it a host plant for swallowtail butterflies and a few other insects, um, it's going to provide a lot of food source in the spring when it blooms. And so that's definitely very beneficial. Um, pretty much anything that flowers. Crab apples, uh, the bees really hit the apple trees hard. And so whether that's regular apple trees or that's actually just crab apples, Um, And then later on in the year, you know, having some late season, um, the catalpa is another really tough tree for western Nebraska that blooms, you know, mid-June. And so you're kind of getting these uh, food sources that are happening different times of the year. In eastern Nebraska, we push a lot of um, witch hazel because it blooms in February and it blooms or or. There's two different kinds. That gets confusing. It doesn't bloom both times. There is common witch hazel and vernal witch hazel. One blooms in like February and one blooms in like October. Is that because you talked about just because it blooms doesn't mean it's producing what the bees need at this time. Is that one that you would encourage or is it it just doesn't grow in western Nebraska? We don't have a lot of witch hazel. I would say an alternate would be current. If you could put in a lot of current, um, that's definitely one. And then um, Cotoneaster is the other one that you could consider. They both provide, I know I have Cotoneaster right next to my honeybees and they go bonkers, which is great because then later on the chickens get to eat all of the little fruits that come off the cotoneasters. That was a fantastic way to talk about the fact that even if a tree produces something, it's okay. Yes. (laughs) I get a lot of frustration from people that just want to talk about how messy trees are. And I just want to point out that they're a lot less messy than the McDonald's cup I ran over in the Target parking lot yesterday. So I let's forgive the trees for dropping some acorns because uh, it's not littering. It's it's natural and we can handle it in the garden. But that was a great full circle. You have bees eating in the spring and you have your chickens eating when the fruits fall. And I like that. Yeah. 
most of the trees that are going to flower are going to produce some kind of byproduct, whether that's an acorn or a fruit, and even the shrubs too. If you don't have room for trees, look into the shrubs. There are a lot of woody shrubs that are going to provide the same benefits that you would get out of your trees. And so you can kind of mix up and have some diversity in that manner. And shrubs, if you put them close enough to each other, they're just going to compete with each other. And they're less management in that, in my mind, you are covering more ground that way. And you have something that's also a different height in your garden, a different texture and a different color. Um, but yes, most of them are going to produce some kind of byproduct. And it only happens for like two weeks out of the entire year. It's okay. Don't waste the rest of the year being frustrated about those two weeks. Don't make your plant choices based on whether or not it's going to fruit. I will say, however, when you are picking out crab apples, Definitely look for the cultivars that are persistent fruiting, which essentially means that they're going to hold on to their fruit all the way into the winter, which basically hangs them on the tree longer for the birds to get at them and for the other wildlife to get at them. But they're not going to drop until essentially you're done mowing. And so you don't have to worry as much if you are really particular about having fruit in your lawn. Plus, if those fruits hang on long enough, they ferment, and then you get to watch the drunk squirrels. And that's just fun. I, our, our backyard crab apple is like that, and we definitely have some party squirrels that show up, and it is funny. That is fantastic. I love it. So some woodies that we talk a lot about in eastern Nebraska, and I'm wondering if it's similar in western, because I'm just not as familiar, um, are like service berries are very popular right now. And then, of course, all types of viburnum. And I know that they're really important for birds. Do bees get a lot of benefits from those as well? Absolutely. Service berries, one of them I should have said earlier. Um, that's a huge, again, the are going any basically anything that's going to provide um, some kind of fruit for the birds more than likely is going to provide some sort of food source whether it be nectar or pollen um, even the viburnum viburnum is really good too and honestly having a variety of nectar sources there are different proteins and other you know beneficial elements to the different species and so actually you have healthier bees by having a diversity um, in your plant selection. So yeah I didn't have room for any more big trees around my pollinator garden so I planted a service berry so I think it's a good option if you do want to include a woody of some sort but don't have room for like a large shade tree or you're worried that then your garden's going to eventually get shaded out at some point. Yeah. And everybody, of course, knows butterfly bush. That's one. Um, they have a buzz series that only gets about three feet tall and three feet wide, which is really fantastic. And I thought there was some controversy with that one over whether it was it was just like junk food for our pollinators. Can you I never know. Sometimes there's some it feels like vying for power in the pollinator plant world between the natives and non-natives and so sometimes I don't know whether to believe that or not. Have you heard any of that drama about butterfly bush? A food source is a food source. I mean I don't know if I only ate cheeseburgers for a week I probably wouldn't be as good. <laughs> I mean if you have a garden that is a hundred percent and only that then yes we would definitely have some problems but if we're going down the food strip and we've got cheeseburgers and spaghetti and all these other things to choose from same thing with the plants. I mean if you've got you know a couple of butterfly bush you've got catmint you've got all these other things and then you add in your trees and your shrubs you've got a variety of things and also keeping in mind like the bloom time. Um, butterfly bush is blooming kind of midsummer, late summer, in the time when the bees are very, very active. And so they are burning through sugar fast. And so they are collecting a lot of nectar. Like I was saying earlier, they collect a lot more pollen in the spring. 
but they're still collecting. They still have to feed the adult bees. And so they still have to make honey. Um, but then as the season goes on, they're almost collecting equal amounts of pollen and nectar. And then um, toward the end of the year, when they are getting to a point that they're going to stop raising more bees, then they are going to be focused a lot on nectar. So that way they can stock up the pantry with a lot of honey to make it through the winter. I think that's a really good way to think about it because I I try to encourage people that just because you want to plant pollinator habitat, it doesn't mean um, you can not have anything that's not perfect in your yard. And it's the same way we talk about humans eating. Just because you want to be a healthy person doesn't mean you can never have anything that doesn't fit that bill. And so we can't... um, we can't always create great urban habitat without turning to some things that aren't necessarily native or aren't necessarily perfect. Um, and I think I would think that if you're talking about urban habitat, that travel distance becomes really important. Um, that we need to be that bees need to be capable of moving from one garden to the other. And if butterfly bush gives them that sugar rush that gets them to the next food source, then that seems beneficial to me. Exactly. I would completely agree. When you're talking about urban and the distance between gardens, that is critical. And if you think about how we as humans, we talk about food deserts all the time, where essentially you have so many miles before the nearest grocery store. If the bees have way too far of distance between good grocery stores or good pollinator gardens for them to be able to get those different things because one bee is only going to be able to carry so much in its bee gut or in its honey gut they are you know sapping up or licking up that nectar and they're storing it in their gut and they're packing their pollen pants with pollen and then they're taking it back and they're unloading everything i just love all of these words (laughs) it's so fun Okay, I want to shift the conversation a little bit because we've talked about woody plants for pollen and nectar, but um, woody plants play a huge critical role in habitat from another perspective, and that's larval host and overwintering sites. Um, It doesn't really matter if we can feed our pollinators if they can't reproduce and they can't make it through the winter. And oak tree is a prime example of that. Oaks are wind pollinated. They're not, they might, you know, a bee might stop to snack there if they're desperate or if they really need some food. I don't know if they do or not, but we know that oaks don't depend on insects for pollination, but oak trees as a genus support over 4,000 species of insects. And I hope we're going to drop a graphic that shows some of these in the show notes. We have to get a hold of that picture but um, I think we have some information from Doug Tallamy if you want to learn more about oaks and pollinators that's the person to go to and you can find all of his books on our bookshop.org link which is bookshop.org slash Nebraska Statewide Arboretum I think we'll put a link in um, because he has many books about supporting pollinators and just wildlife in general using trees Yeah, we couldn't make it through a trees and bees talk without bringing up Doug Tallamy. So if you haven't read his work, you need to look it up, Uh, preferably through our bookstore. That can get overlooked a lot because, you know, we don't, I mean, really, if you just want to do something good for nature, plant an oak. (laughs) Right. That's just, it's an easy, it's an easy thing to do. They support so much. Um, Thinking about the overwintering and how the oaks are playing a role. One, their leaf litter. By leaving the leaves, they the, the oak leaves are going, they don't break down super fast, um, but they will break down over the winter time. And so they can create a really nice sort of padded overwintering area. You know, if we've got insects that are uh, basically turning into a chrysalis, right before the hard winter hits and they are going down into that leaf litter. And essentially that is sort of their blanket for the winter. That's keeping them um, warm enough, essentially. And then also with oaks, their kind of rugged bark really uh, uh, creates a lot of uh, nooks and crannies 
that the larvae or the insects that are more likely going to overwinter on the bark of the tree. And so that's why so many oaks um, with their corky bark or their goofy, like bur oak, obviously, a lot of corkiness, um, elms are the same way uh, as well. I think when we talk about caterpillars turning into butterflies or moss, a lot of us have in our head the picture of the monarch caterpillar chrysalis dangling from the stem of a plant. And that's not actually the most common way. It's just very visible to us as humans. More caterpillars form their chrysalis or their cocoon down in the leaf litter, which is why you hear us pushing leave the leaves so much. Yeah. Some of them will make a little den or a little burrow just underneath the surface. A lot of beetles will go underground and then they will crystallize and then turn, go from basically a larva into um, the beetle. And so a lot of our other pollinators do the same. And there's a reason why monarchs are so visible in because they're hard to eat for other things. They don't taste good. So they can afford to be a little bit more out there. Every Most everything else needs that protection. They need more hidden spaces in order to reproduce and metamorphize. Yeah. Ooh, another fun word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's spend just a little bit of time uh, on how do we get woody species into our gardens? Because we know that a lot of people, um, you know, if you have an acreage and you have the opportunity to plant any tree that you want to, you've got huge opportunities and that's wonderful. Plant some oaks, plant some catalpas, plant everything that you can think of. But we know that a lot of our listeners are in more urban areas um, and our our gardens are limited there. I mean, I, I, only, I probably have the trees that are going to be in my yard. I think I'm full. I would have to remove something to add another tree. But we have we have smaller options. So you've talked about some of your favorites being like currants and remind me what else you said is your favorite smaller. Cotone aster can be a little bit bigger, um, but it's definitely a good shrub option. There's a lot of viburnums like Hannah was talking about. Um, and then there are some smaller varieties of like service berry. Um, but I would say that I think currant is probably one of my favorites. And Hannah, I know you have a lot of favorites because you've thought this through with your small shady yard. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm in the same spot where I, my yard is kind of full. I did have to remove a tree, so I planted two more. So I had a little bit of room. I did try to plant an oak and it actually failed. So I had, I know, right? That was on me. That was that was total planting error, I'm pretty sure. Um, but I planted a bitternut hickory, which is going to be a nice big shade tree for us. But I also planted a black cherry, which will stay a little bit smaller and will do a lot for many different types of wildlife. So I'm excited for that. And I'm also, I have a service berry in place that I... <laughs> have been failing miserably because first year I got eaten by rabbits and then the next year oh no the first year I didn't water it and then the next year it got eaten by rabbits and it just keeps kind of coming back so I'm gonna let it see what happens this year but hopefully it keeps going they are tough shrubs they can handle some pretty uh harsh treatment and still come back the next year which is nice because the other thing too okay so say you get a service berry and it starts to get out of hand and it starts to be too big for the space that you have just chop it back cut it down to like 12 inches and let it grow again each year I keep hearing this from all kinds of tree people like oh just cut it basically down and I am you have much more confidence in the tree than I do (laughs) Well, your rabbits already did it for you. So, I mean, this particular one has proven its its desire to live. One of my really exciting shrubs that I added to my garden, and I know that it will potentially get big, but I am hoping that by putting some aggressive neighbors next to it, it will kind of keep it in check, um, is a silver buffalo berry which is something that is a huge pollinator magnet. It's got gorgeous silvery texture or silvery color to it. It's got a fine leaf on it. 
Um, again, though, it's one of those that if it does get a little out of hand, I can just whack it back. I think kind of in line with that, and I hope my parents don't listen to this episode, um, I bought my dad a wild plum and planted it in their yard. <laughs> and I was like, it'll be fine, guys. <laughs> But it can also get a little aggressive. But it's really good as well. Do you, is that something you would recommend? Absolutely. Um, can't believe I didn't even think about it yet. But Wild Plum won huge on pollinators, on having the bloom, a lot of blooms. And then, of course, who doesn't want to go pick plums uh, later on? I mean, those are the best <laughs> thing. I pointed at Sarah because she doesn't like plums. It's crazy. Oh how are we even friends? I like the boring old grocery store plums, but I for wild plums, I need them like made into a cake or something. Maybe you're just picking them at the wrong time. That's critical because if, it's possible. And you are probably eating the skin, which is the worst thing. You want to like. Pick okay, them. have you ever seen the size of a wild plum? They're like <laughs> tiny. I don't got time to peel all these tiny little plums. Oh no. You just pop it in your mouth, you separate the skin from the fruit because you want to wait until the fruit is really soft. And the outside of the plum has what we call a bloom on it, kind of like an egg has a bloom on it when they lay. When it starts to get kind of that uh, foggy look on the outside and it's a really dark color underneath, then you kind of take your thumb and wipe the bloom off and it's soft to the touch. That is the perfect time to eat the plum. If you are not waiting long enough, it's going to be bitter and it's not going to be great. This might be my problem. I learn a lot about eating things from you because you're also the one who taught me the, I'm putting this in quotes, proper way to eat raspberries and blackberries. Yes. Uh, I hate getting the seeds <laughs> stuck in my teeth. No one ever told me this. And I just started doing it. You just squish it between the roof of your mouth and your tongue. You don't use your teeth when you eat blueberries and raspberries. Because if you use your teeth, you're going to get them all stuck in your in in the cracks and crevices and it's just annoying because then you're picking at your teeth forever like i don't like popcorn because of that reason this is a life hack that i feel like we should sell <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i'm telling you she she knows a lot of things about how to eat stuff although we might have to disagree popcorn is my favorite food in the world yeah, <laughs> but i agree it is annoying to then be like picking the the shells out of your teeth forever Okay, I think we got distracted. There was something else I wanted to bring up. Oh, um, New Jersey tea is not... So this is where, like, buffalo berry, I have huge plant envy over. That's a Western plant. That's that's what right. you can have that I can't have. New Jersey tea is something I can have that you can't have. <laughs> There's a lot more things that you can have that I can't have, but... Um, it's It is just like this little like three to three and a half foot ball shrub that just it, it stays small on its own it might get a little bigger than that in like a super happy condition but um it's not a big shrub a western alternate to that might be apache plume yes. apache plume stays a little bit smaller it really wants to be dry very dry but it's gonna max out about three feet tall um it, I mean, if it's really, really happy and you don't prune it ever, it might get to four feet. But for the most part, it blooms like crazy, all these white flowers all over it when it's happy. And then it pops out these little like truffula tree uh, looking seed heads. And so the whole thing is just like fuzzy white. And so and uh, it's like a clematis. What is the fancy word for a clematis seed head? I don't do fancy words. <laughs> Anyways. You fixed our French. Yeah. <laughs> One of those. It, uh, yeah. Just imagine a truffle tree, white, fuzzy, kind of like a dandelion head after it, you know, turns white. Yeah. That, All over the shrub. I feel like that was a great comparison. New Jersey tea doesn't make puffs. It just makes seed pods. But um, those are like two very comparative shapes and sizes new jersey tea is covered in white flowers and covered in pollinators and i use it sometimes in bloom box because even though it's it's a woody plant um it's the size and shape of a perennial 
and you could manage it just like a perennial. You could cut it back every year. You just lose a lot of, um, I think you might lose some shape and longevity in that stressing it like that, but you would also lose that larval host capability, that, that overwintering of things. One of the shrubs that we haven't talked about yet is the um, lilac. That's definitely a huge pollinator magnet. You can get them in all shapes, sizes, and colors. Mm -hmm. Just find the one that fits your space. Can you give us a quick primer on lilac management? Yeah. Hannah, you were talking about not wanting to cut things back. I have lilacs, and I'm afraid to do anything to them. And so now they're um, not doing as well as they should. And I feel bad because the owner of my house previous to me brought them from her home in Kansas and she loved she loves these lilacs and I know she looks at them and probably goes oh that girl she's not taking care of my lilacs so tell me how to get back in good graces okay most critical thing one it sounds like you have the second type of lilac so there are really truly two ways that lilacs grow you have like the Japanese or the Miss Kim lilac and the way that you know that is because there's only one stem coming out of the ground most of the time and so if you have like a small little like meatball shaped lilac and there's like one stem coming out of the ground and maybe a couple small sprouts you don't want to heavily prune them. You can do a reduction cut and take a third of the length off of the ends. Um, but if you have the second type of lilac, which sounds like it, this is the most typical like farmstead lilac that you're going to get. There's going to be a lot of stems coming up out of the ground. They kind of creep and they throw stems all the time. And so what happens is as those stems age out, they become less productive. And so we use the third, third, third rule. Um, if you have a stand that hasn't been touched in like 10 years or maybe even five, you can go in and take a third of the oldest stems out this year. And then you are going to take a third of the height off of the rest of the stems that you leave. And you're going to do that once every three years. And so basically you take a third of the biggest stems out this year, uh, the next third out next year, and then the third third out the third year that's a lot of thirds (laughs) anyways um you want to have young viable branches coming out and the more you prune them and if you do it progressively like that you're going to get a lot of reactive growth which is going to be young and it's going to push some really productive young tissue essentially that was selfish just for me thank you yeah (laughs) When you cut those stems back, like 12, 18 inches, because sometimes even those stems will push from the sides um, on the the latent buds that are just kind of sitting there dormant. But when you take the top of them off, it's going to send that chemical signal to push new growth. Thank you. Also, because I want to make lilac syrup because it sounds amazing. Oh, my. I love lilac syrup. I haven't had this. It's Hook me up. From the flower. I mean, think about how a, a lilac smells. Yeah. And think about tasting that. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it's something you either love or don't love. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I have thought about kind of gorilla stealing some lilac flowers from campus. <laughs> there's lilacs everywhere. Right, they have well a huge mixed. lilac collection. Yeah. yeah, but I haven't done that yet. And so I will take care of my lilacs, and then I will make syrup, and I will give it to you. Okay, all right. Oh, number one critical rule about pruning lilacs. Prune right after the bloom. They bloom on last year's wood and so all of them bloom in the spring and then right after that bloom is done that's when you want to prune because then over the summer that plant is growing or developing the blooms for the next spring so if you bloom before sorry if you prune early spring before it blooms you're cutting the blooms off you're cutting those um, flower buds off essentially um, so you want to make sure that as soon as it's done blooming and you don't want to prune late fall either, because again, you're cutting the flower buds off. So always right after, and that's a general rule of thumb that you can use for most flowering plants, just to know that you're not cutting that flower bud off and you don't have to look into the science of does it bloom on first year wood or second year wood or this year or last year? What, you know, what is it? 
just bloom, cut, let it grow. I have one last real quick thing to talk about with shrubs, and then we're going to wrap up for today. But um, we're usually pretty forgiving of cultivars when we talk about choosing plants. When it comes to woody plants, there's one thing to to kind of watch for, and that is like the fruitless cultivars. If it's fruitless, it's useless. (laughs) Right. It's probably not going to bloom. They selected a male. Uh, They tissue cultured it. Essentially, they cut off a cutting and they gave it a new root system. And they said, here you go. We know that this one doesn't provide or produce any fruit, which means it's not going to produce any flowers. Right. That's why we discourage like cottonless cottonwoods. Amen. Cottonless cottonwoods. Oh, gosh. You're going to get me on this really fast. Here's the problem. They selected the cottonless cottonwood for one reason, and that's for its not making cotton. They ignored all the other genetics. And so they have terrible branching structure. They fall apart fast. Those were not the genetics that they were paying attention to when they were selecting cottonless cottonwoods. And so they grow fast, they die young, and they fall apart. They're not worth it. That was harsh. Okay. <laughs> but I agree. It's just, there are times and places, like when we talk about the um, thornless honey locust, and we talk about, um, what's that Kentucky coffee tree you're always yep, using? Yep. Kentucky coffee tree. Yeah. That is that is a tree that surprisingly uh, blooms a lot. And so you do not want the podless version. Same thing with honey locusts, because if you actually pay attention to them, uh, Kentucky coffee tree, most of the time you miss the bloom because it blooms after the leaves are on and they are huge racemes. And if you ever stand under a Kentucky coffee tree while it's blooming, it is buzzing like crazy. I had never seen the flowers until you showed me, but they, they are really, they're neat. They're just not what you would see looking at it from like, you know, 20 feet away. Right. They definitely aren't like a big pop showy color, but they are big. If you catch it just in time, and honestly, I can only catch it because I'm walking under one and it's buzzing. And I'm like, okay, hold on. Where do I need to be looking? Where are they at? What are they on? I need one. And we're not saying there's never a place for those. When we start to talk about like downtowns and parking lots and stuff, we can we can have a different conversation about those. But if your goal is pollinators and you plant something that doesn't produce fruit, then they messed with the whole reproductive capabilities of that plant, which is what our bees are relying on for food. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Chrissy, for talking to us about bees and trees and many other things. We appreciate it. Are you ready to talk about our, our, well, this time we're going to do tree of the week, trees that are on our minds, because it's around Arbor Day and this is all about trees. So Sarah, would you like to go first? Yes, I can. My tree, I really can't remember if I've done this one before, so I'm sorry. It's going to be sycamore. Just They're just my favorite tree. Um, you know, even in the winter, they're just majestic. They're huge. And their peely bark that leaves the white underbark showing is just gorgeous. And then um, they're the little balls they make that hang on through the winter. And they're gigantic leaves that look like dinosaur footprints. I just love sycamores. I love everything about them, except the fact that they don't fit in my yard. Yeah, sycamores take up a lot of space. What tree is on your mind, Chrissy? I'm going to go back to the box elder. It's a very underused tree in the landscape, Um, or at least in recent years. It hasn't been planted as much. There's the new cultivar, Sensation Box Elder. I'm not a fan of it. It burns up in western Nebraska in our hot, hot summers. Um, But one, it's an early pollinator food source because it's in the maple family. Two, it can become a really fantastic dense shade tree. And it's not monstrous like the sycamore, but it's also not little like a small crab apple. Um, and I think it kind of looks like it has a bad hair day, but it's a really cool texture. And it's not only beneficial 
for the insects, but it also, like I said, it brings that different element. It brings a different color to your landscape and a different texture to your landscape. And it can be grown all the way across the state. Just go get one off the river. <laughs> Same with cottonwoods. If you want a cottonwood, just just dig one up. Yeah. Okay, Hannah, what tree is on your mind this week? This tree is on my mind this week and every week because it is my favorite and it's a catalpa tree. Um, they're gorgeous. I just love, especially, I think they look good year round. Same with the, all these other trees because the blooms are gorgeous in the early spring. You definitely notice them. They are big white flowers and they do litter the sidewalks a bit, but I don't really care. And then the leaves are huge heart shaped leaves. So they're very easy to identify. And then when they don't have flowers or leaves, the branches, I feel like, are just like they're crisscrossing and they're twisty and they do all these different. It's like a interesting branch structure tree as well, especially when left to, to its own devices, like we see a lot along the trails here in eastern Nebraska. So and they pop up because they they can reproduce through the roots. They'll just send up little shoots and different things. Um, so I guess not really reproduction, but you can correct me if you want, Chrissy, whatever that's called. And so you often see like groves of these together and you can see them everywhere. And I just think they're pretty and fun. I really love how their character. Uh, after the leaves have fallen, some of the seed pods are still on the tree. And so, like you said, you've got this really gnarly, twisted growth that's really bulky, thick twigs. And then you've got these, like, kind of, I don't know, like Edward Scissorhand things hanging down, like, <laughs> Yeah, they're perfect for Halloween trees. Yes. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Please feel free to send us your questions. We're in the thick of gardening season, so send those questions in so we can help you out. Maybe we'll do a couple of question-only episodes. You can do that via our email or through our SpeakPipe link. All of that you can find in the show notes. Don't forget to rate and review us everywhere you're listening. It helps us reach new people, so please do that. And Bloombox and Bloombox Growing Deeper are both programs of the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum. Mm -hmm.